0: Okay. Do. Welcome to the fifth episode of Comma Press's podcast in association with Manchester Metropolitan University and the People's History Museum. This is a series of conversations which Comma has convened uh, around a book we published uh, in 2017 called "Protest: Stories of Resistance," for which uh, we invited writers, historians, and activists to enter into discussions with the aim of reimagining particular moments of protest history through fiction and also through uh, non-fictional. Afterwards, today uh, we are discussing the the great marches of Oldmaston, uh, a peace uh, activism phenomenon which occurred in the late nineteen fifties uh, and, and carried on through to the early nineteen sixties. Um, and we are honoured to be joined by uh, May Chatham, who is a uh, a CND lifelong CND member um, who joined the campaign for nuclear disarmament in nineteen fifty seven. Um, and uh, was a, uh, a young member of the Chingford branch, which was founded by her parents, and attended the march, uh, the very first march in Easter weekend, 1958. And also by uh, Michael Randall, who is a member of the Direct Act Action Committee that organised that uh, march, um, and uh, has a illustrious uh, career and history of uh, direct action and... Uh, peaceful protest, um, in particular around nuclear disarmament. Um, Michael uh, also wrote the afterward to Stuart Effords' story, uh, which imagines the 1963 march. Um, we also joined uh, the aforementioned author Stuart Effords, um whose story about the march is called uh, The Blind Light. Uh, Stuart's uh, first collection of stories, um, 10 Stories About Smoking, Uh, won the London Book Award in 2011. His novel, If This Is Home, uh, followed it in 2012, and his most recent collection of short stories is Your Father Senses Love. Uh, Stuart has also written for Grant of the White Review uh, and Prospect. Um, I'm going to start, Michael, uh, because it is a great, great honor to have one of the organizers of this march here in the studio with us. Um, I'm gonna start by asking you to sort of talk us through um, the developments uh, uh, in the 1950s that led to this first Great March in, in
1: 58. Well, it started in the early 1950s um, with the formation of, some, of a group which called itself initially Operation Gandhi and then became a bit self-conscious about the name and it became the Nonviolent Resistance Group, but Operation Gandhi was a pretty good name. And the idea was to use... Gandhian non-violent resistance, but uh, against the whole war machine. Um, and uh, we, the, the, the first demonstration, I wasn't on um, because I was up in court as a uh, up before a tribunal for as a conscientious objector. Um, but that was a sit-down outside the War Office in Whitehall, um, and that would be what nineteen. 51 or 52, I'm not I think it's sure. January 52. 52, that's right, yes, it was just into 52. And, and can I
0: just butt in and ask, what, you were a, a conscientious objector to uh, just to enrol, to uh, being enlisted, um, or was there a particular conflict? Was it the Korean War, or let's it, locate ourselves?
1: The start off for me was nuclear weapons, yep. because I'd been brought up in the strict uh, sort of Catholic tradition, Christian tradition of just war, and uh, the just war says it that not only must the cause be uh, a good one, a mm-hmm. correct one, um, but the means that are used must be discriminate. And it seemed to me that it was totally incompatible to have to use nuclear weapons, which are weapons of mass destruction. So that was my starting point. Then, when I became involved, I, I met pacifists and learned about Gandhi and his nonviolent resistance. And I decided that that was the way forward, and I would object to taking part in any military action or or, or to being conscripted. Great. So, um, so the, as you
0: say, the first uh, the first sort of major sit down was January 1952 outside the War Office, um, where various people were arrested and uh, and taken to court, um, and then. Over the next few years, these these kind of uh, protests grew. Um, there was the uh, biological warfare uh, establishment in Porton Down, which is still That's very right, much yeah. uh, very yes, much I in our headlines. Um, in fifty two, and where did the idea of focusing on Aldermaston come about? And, and tell us a bit about what Aldermaston
1: was. Aldermaston, well, it actually had been uh, an American air base during the war. But then it was uh, switched to developing nuclear weapons, a research establishment for nuclear weapons. It originally called itself the Aldermaston uh, Research Establishment. They they didn't let on that it, it was going to be for uh, atomic weapons. Um, we learnt about it from somebody who was in our... Uh, Operation Gandhi group. This was a, an idea to use uh, Gandhian methods against war. Um, and uh, somebody who was in that group lived in the Aldermaston area and he saw this work going on um, and uh, tried to find out a bit more about it. And Hugh Brock, who was the chair of our group, said, well, let's, uh, let's hold a demonstration there. And I think that was the first um, action that I was on. But it was a very small group. We just went out in a coach and marched around the base and uh, frightened a lot of cows who took panic and, <laughs> and galloped away um, and then had a meeting uh, in the Aldermaston village. Um, but uh, that's how it came about, through somebody called Lawrence Brown, who lived in that area, um, and incidentally, who later was leading... The, uh, the first Aldermaston march and showing us where to go. <laughs> and you were, as you talk
0: about Gandhi's influence, but you were sort of fundamentally international in your, in your kind of thinking. Um, you, you met with uh, Asha Devi Aryanakam, uh whose name I can't pronounce, yeah. um, who was a, a close associate of Gandhi's. Um, so it wasn't just completely kind of abstract.
1: No, um, it was really centered around uh, organisationally around Peace News, which had, had an international uh, outreach. And one of the things that uh, Hugh Brock, who was a deputy editor and later editor of Peace News, one of the things that he did is when people who had been involved in direct action in other countries came through, he would invite them uh, to, to speak to our... And we had little group meetings where people talked about what they... Um, what they'd been involved with. And Asha Devi Aranaikin was involved in Gandhi's campaign. And one of the people that we we met was uh, Bayard Rustin, um, American, Afro-American, um, who had been involved in in action against uh, racial discrimination in the United States. Um, and later went on to organise the um,
0: it's the nineteen sixty three march on Washington? The, yeah, the, the, yeah, the march on Washington. That's right. So, so you you are kind of slap bang in the middle of history. Really, you've got the uh, Gandhi's Salt March, which was this right. uh, this phenomenal march to the to the sea to uh, to encourage Indians right. to make their own salt and kind of disrupt the right. um, disrupt this, the kind of ecological um, the, the economic kind of colonialisation of India. Um, so you've got the Salt March, then you've got Oldermaston, and then ultimately you've got um, the Martin Luther King um, March on Washington, 1963, which is a, a kind of phenomenal moment in protest history. And, and, uh, and Bayard was, was there um, kind
1: of carrying this idea forward. Absolutely. Well, uh, Bayard was actually on the, the Aldermaster March as well. He took part in that. Um, and he's credited with, I think he told us himself that he Took that symbol, the 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 nuclear disarmament symbol, to the states where it has now spread as the peace symbol. Um, and and you were there in the room with with
0: Gerald uh, Holton, the uh, designer who first showed you his 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 sort of drafts for this symbol.
1: Yes, Gerald Holton was uh, an artist from Twickenham, and he was in touch with Hugh Brock, and. Uh, he saw the publicity for for this forthcoming march and he got in touch with us and he had said he had some ideas for publicising the march and he came up and saw at Peace News, I was working there at the time, um, it was Pat Arrowsmith, Hugh Brock and myself and uh, we took him to to this upstairs room where the Direct Action Committee had its office and showed us these sketches which was the semaphore positions for N and D, um, the straight up and down and then the the sort of N sign. Um, And uh, so we said, yes, we'll go for it. Uh, But not everybody was convinced. There was somebody uh, who was working with us at Peace News who the first leaflets that came out with this symbol on said to me, what on earth were the three of you thinking about? When you adopted that symbol, it doesn't mean a thing and it will never catch on. Um, And I think if the march had completely flopped, he might have been right, but it didn't. Uh, And that's another story. In tribute to to the person who said that, that I never saw him for the rest of his life without him having a a nuclear disarmament badge on.
0: This was uh, Harry Mr. Harry Mr., exactly, yes. Fantastic. Um, So... Then uh, we're, we're just going, moving through the 1950s. 1956 was kind of a key year for uh, uh, the peace movement and the left. Um, do you want to talk us through a little bit of, of, of why it was so important? I think it was
1: important because several things happened on the international uh, scale um, that changed things. One was the Suez adventure, um, and that rallied people um, a wide, who had a wide range of, of different views, but who saw the uh, immorality and the madness of, uh, of the Suez uh, intervention in Suez
0: and this was the, um, this was the israeli British and French attack on e- right. Egypt to, yeah. to recapture the Suez Canal, uh, which was obviously hugely strategically important, uh, which the then president of egypt nasser abdel nasser. Um, had tried to, to had tried to nationalize it. He, he nationalized into, it, yeah. and then
1: uh, the British and French and Israelis um, intervened to try and prevent that.
0: And so there was that colonialist kind of moment happening in, uh, in the Middle East, and then there was also Hungary.
1: That was the other thing. Um, and uh, that disillusioned a lot of people who had looked to the Soviet Union as the progressive force, and suddenly they were intervening, uh, to suppress what was um, uh, a genuine move away from from a very uh, authoritarian style of communism um, to to something more liberal and progressive, if you like. Um, and uh, so the, there was a coming together of people uh, who looked to Suez as, as a great disgrace and, and something that we must mobilise against Um, And people who had been on the left, some in the Communist Party, some left the Communist Party to say, no, we can't support um, this, which is is like an imperialist intervention. Um, And so you've got the coming together of these things Um, up up in this part of the world. There was the new reasoner um, and uh, there was also the uh, universities and left review, um, which was uh, very good magazine and and they had they had uh, the partisan coffee house in london uh, which uh, was propagating these ideas and and was a kind of hub for for activities Um, they eventually came together to form the new left uh, and the new left review um, which is still going and recommend people to, to to look at that and were you?
0: Did you? Were you a, a regular frequenter of the Partisan Coffee Shop?
1: Um, I wouldn't say I went there that often, but uh, enough to to find out about and met Stuart Hall and, and people like that.
0: Because it's kind of entered into folklore almost. Yes. Uh, as yeah. a as a as a kind of a meeting point and a melting pot. Yeah, and it. of course
1: what, when we were. Propagating the the Aldermaston March, letting people know about it. The Partisan Coffee House, what was a kind of hub for distributing these leaflets and letting people know about it. And
0: uh, then uh, there was the attempt. There was the the news that there was going to be an H bomb test in on Christmas Island um, uh, in the Pacific, and there was an attempt to send a boat um, in there from Japan to kind of. Uh, a very brave <laughs> suggestion to, to try to disrupt that, that testing. That didn't happen. Um, and that brings us, I guess, to uh, 1958.
1: Yeah, well, just let me say about the, um, uh, the attempt to sail to, to Christmas Island. That was the, an initiative of a man called Harold Steele, a Quaker and Unitarian. Um, and he did get to Japan and he did manage to, to hire a boat but it was uh, the bomb went off a bit too soon and it was when he came back that hugh brock uh, uh, on our small uh, operation gandhi or direct action group um, called together people who had a lot of people had volunteered or had expressed interest and so there was a meeting in london to see how that initiative could be furthered because there was a lot of interest, so we should try and build on that. And it was at that meeting, uh, which was attend- which was called by Hugh Brock um, and uh, Lawrence Brown was there. And that was where the suggestion came, why don't we go back to Aldermaster? We'd had one long while back, um, but this time we'll make it not just going out in, in a coach to the site, but a, a four-day march all the way from uh, from London to Aldermaston, so that was uh, very much tied up with the uh, Harold Steele's initiative, and
0: it quickly became a very sort of popular idea. You you um, you realised uh, within a few weeks of coming up with this idea that there was going to be a lot of people there, and it, it would need a, a lot of organising. Um, so I, I thought I'd move on to you, May, uh, to, to tell us your kind of memories of that first march.
2: I heard about it through my parents who were active in the Labour Party and were instrumental in founding Chingford um, CND. And part of me didn't want to get involved because it wasn't cool to be involved in things your parents were involved in. Absolutely right. But I went to see a film called Children of Hiroshima, and some of you may aware of that film and I felt very strongly that I needed to do something and so um, I did join the march I didn't do it all but I it was an awakening for me and by 1959 I was ready to do the march which by then had turned in the opposite direction a very wise decision so that instead of being out in the middle of nowhere you were coming into Trafalgar Square And by then, we had 20 or 30 across the road. Thousands of people took part. And the organisation was absolutely phenomenal. And the only thing I can think of is that a lot of people involved had been in the forces because it was a military organisation in terms of stewards, in terms of first aid vehicles going up and down. Um, Every area was given a colour and you had a lollipop to designate your group so that you couldn't get lost you had a the same colour on your accommodation card and i think this has to be seen in the context of the times these were times when young people generally stayed at home with their mum and dad and didn't go off sleeping in church halls and pubs in fact i think the first night i spent was in the butcher's arms and we're all lying on the floor in the butcher's arms Boys and girls, as it were, the young people all together, church halls and schools and so on. And it was very, very unusual. And uh, it created a bit of a sensation at my school that I'd been involved in something seen as very odd and rebellious. The atmosphere was incredible because there was a lot of determination, a lot of fellowship and a lot of fun as well. And when you look back, this was a time when we were walking in school shoes or hard walking shoes. There were no such things as trainers. Mm. The girls were in dresses and skirts. There were very, very few pairs of jeans or anything like that available. So, And no social media for communicating. So how we got it together with mm. our meetings and our leafleting, I don't know. But we did somehow... And it was a very exciting time and quite a scary time as well because it was bringing home to us the dangers of, of nuclear weapons and I think people felt very strongly about it. It was a very mixed bunch of people on the CND marches, mm. I would have said, um, from students, schoolchildren, to people from churches, political groups... Some people still in the Communist Party, some disenchanted with it. And I wanted to say a little bit about YCND, the youth campaign, because that took off with um, a flourish, really. We had a national group. We had an international representative um, called Dan Elwin jones quite a familiar name to some people and um, we had a committee and we organised a lot of local YCND groups. So my group, Chingford, had a very active group of young people and we lived and breathed and died anti-nuclear activity. By I think 1960, my memory is not brilliant on dates, I'd got involved with the direct action campaign because I was getting more and more incensed about the position of nuclear weapons and about the cost and, and so on. And I joined Pat smith and others in demonstrating, and I was arrested a couple of times. I served a very short prison sentence, and where we had to wear, in those days, prison uniform, where conditions were appalling where you got issued with an issue of toilet paper and an issue of sanitary towels. And um, you were put into a very humiliating position. And interestingly enough, some people did write to the authorities about the conditions and there were some changes made. Which prison were you in? Strange ways, when when they had women. And I was on remand in Winson Green in Birmingham Mm -hmm. as well and later involved in the protest at Holy Lock, the anti-Polaris, which was quite um, dramatic because they we were all sitting in front of the vessel and they were encouraging the sailors to walk on us, to tread over us. And I can remember quite clearly one young man said, I can't do that, they're people, I can't tread on them. But some did. And um, we were... Arrested there, and they held us in a, a pre- police station, I think in Dunoon, and they couldn't cope with the numbers because they needed to feed us. So they sent out for the most wonderful bacon butties I've ever had <laughs> because that was all they had locally. And we were told that if you were a, a student, you were being fined a small amount, if you were a vicar or a teacher, you were being fined a bit more, if you were a professor, a bit more, and so on. So I was first on the next morning and so when they said have you anything to say I made a speech and got cheered and they threatened to clear the gallery and then find me what they were finding the top-notch people and I got hundreds of letters from people saying that wasn't fair and money to give to CNDs. (laughs) Um, So that was an interesting experience. What what must
0: your parents have thought? You said they're they're radical, but if you t- kind of transfer this to like an eighteen year old nowadays, they'd be worried about um their, their career prospects the fact that they've got a criminal record now employees are going to see that you've spent time in jail were you did you think about these things at the time or... didn't occur to me yeah. just
2: didn't occur to me and my parents were very good I mean my mother was quite an anxious mother anyway and she was a bit anxious about sleeping arrangements in in halls and schools and things and um and she didn't like the idea of me being in prison but it didn't occur to us to link that with future, Mm -hmm. Uh, somehow or other we felt we had the moral high ground and they supported that, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, And there was, when I did say something in the court, I said something about moral law and that was reported in the papers. So I think my parents took the view that if I felt so strongly, then, you know, they would support me really.
0: And and Michael, you've spent many terms
1: in the the slammer, shall we say. The first was um, in 1958. following the Aldermaston March, the Direct Action Committee, which organized it, um, held us a six or eight week picket at Aldermaston. we sat down outside. Um, but we weren't arrested on, on that occasion. Uh, well, there was a, a picket and then we, we actually went inside the, the perimeter uh, right next to the um, entrance and sat there day and night for a week um but we followed that up with um a, a sit down uh, an occupation of the uh, of the of um in north Pickenham it was uh, these american medium range rockets and um on the first occasion they they left it to the uh, to the people working on the site to turn their hoses on people um i wasn't uh, i was on the outside for that one and then two weeks later we went back and uh, this time the police were really ready for us and we couldn't get inside the base Um, but um, we were arrested well we blockaded the the entrance and we were arrested and we spent a week over the Christmas period in Norwich Prison, um, but it was fantastic. The uh, the response we got we they, we were showered with cakes and sweets and chocolates, and uh, they didn't know what to do with them all. So in, in the end, they all went to local charities. Um, uh, and you weren't you weren't daunted by the prospects of of spending well I had like Christmas uh, in prison. Not really, because I, I, I'd been reading about Gandhi and and the the, uh, the 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 movement there, where people spent years in prison, and so this was, uh, this was a very minor thing compared to, to all that. So um, no, and and also we have to remember that there was, um, I don't know, uh, certainly thirty or forty of us. Um, and uh, in this local, fairly local prison, and there was a sense of solidarity. In fact, they um, they had to put us to work in the actual wing because uh, there were too many of us to go into the workshop. So there was there was a great sense of of solidarity. I, I do remember one little incident. There was quite a few Quakers, and uh, at one time we we were all meant well sewing mail bags, which is job for intellectuals, of course. So. <laughs> The uh, Quaker said, "We will we'll have a meeting." So we were sitting in silence, and uh, one of the prison officers came by and started giving orders. And uh, the one of the people said, "Shh!" There's a, a religious meeting going on here, and, and the prison officer said, "Ha! There's a time and a place for everything," <laughs> but he didn't really interrupt us. Um, I thought we
0: should uh, bring in Stuart at this point. Uh, so Stuart, I thought just before I get you to, to read uh, your passage, I was going to ask you kind of just uh, generally, uh, what drew you to Aldermast in particular uh, when choosing uh, Protest to write about?
3: Sure. Well, in the course of um, researching my, uh, the, the novel that I've been writing, um, I became very interested in the, um, in the, in the CND movement particularly. Um, and so, obviously, I was drawn to the Aldermaston marches as a as a real focus point or focal point for CND, the growth of CND, um, and also just the, the sheer diversity of, of people, right, class, gender, um, background, seemed to be across the board, and I found that very, very interesting. Um, and in the course of my research, I also discovered the split, if you like it, in, in CND between the traditional peace, peace activists and those that were advocating more direct action um, and exposing uh, elements of the government's nuclear strategy, particularly for domestic defence. On the 1963 Older Master March, there was um, both a, a physical and ideological split between uh, members of CND, um, uh, approximately 600 or so um, protesters went um, went off, deviated from the usual route of Old Boston to go and um, demonstrate outside what's known as an RSG or a regional seat of government. Uh, these were supposedly secret facilities that would house um, dignitaries, um, people of import uh, in the event of an atomic strike. Um, and I found that a very interesting, very powerful um sense of, of what was going to happen with the cnd movement particularly in 63 is also very important in as much as it's the first march post the um the Cuban missiles crisis and um that doesn't make a make a huge difference in terms of what happened with cnd um and the the activists movement away necessarily from campaigning for nuclear disarmament and disarmament and more um, pushed for um against the vietnam war that was that was coming at that point so It's a really, really kind of interesting place in in time and in history in terms of the protest movement against um, nuclear weapons.
0: Great. So um, do you want to give us a quick reading of a passage from the story? Yeah,
3: sure. So so this extract is... sums up a little bit of what i've just been saying um the only thing you really need to know is that there's two central characters drummond and matilde and matilde and drummond are married um they are on the 1963 aldermaston march um and and drummond has come for more complex reasons than matilde um but uh the point is that they've 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 had a disagreement and they have um misplaced each other in the march and drummond is now going to see if he can find her So this is from the story The Blind Light. Through the march he walked, easygoing at first, shuffling past families, excusing himself as he brushed against someone, then not, in his increasing urgency, progress more important than politeness. Mathilde would now be worried of this he was sure, checking back, possibly even walking against the tide, making her way back towards him. He would see her first, though, the gas blue jacket and the green scarf lit up as in neon. He'd see her, and she'd see him, at last, and together they would walk on, hand in hand, in silent forgiveness. The hill he reached quickly, the placards and signs just visible again, some of the marches looking familiar, men and women he'd seen before. He stood on the balls of his feet when impeded, and when not, moved off with sharpened elbows. The further he went, the more he overtook, the more he sensed something change. There was a slight unrest, a skitter to the surrounding conversations, even to the fluid motion of the march. The music was still there, but the key had changed, or the tone, or the way it was played. Either way, it was off and the accompanied, un- unaccompanied by voices. The ro- road leaned rightwards, and in the distance, there was an impasse of some kind, a group moving away from the main body of the marchers. Those around him seemed to have no better idea of what was going on than he did. At the crest of the hill, he saw identical pieces of paper on the asphalt, notices of some kind dropped to the ground spoiled by boot prints and pram wheels he ducked past a family and into a standing man he had long curls a rag beard and was dealing out flyers direct action he said as he passed out the papers direct action direct action drummond tried to walk and read walk and read and search for mathilde he looked at the photostatted paper a picture of a nondescript building one like many they had blindly walked past the headline says Direct action against RSGs. A regional seat of government, the sheet read, is an affront to us all. A secret safe haven for the ruling classes when the bonds drop. They tell us lies about survival because they know they are safe. The time has come for direct action. We must overcome. We must show them that we know their secrets and will expose them to the world. He walked on, holding the flyer, walked on into the impasse. The crowd slowed and rubbernecked at the few taking the other path, but the majority stayed left. It was a binary option. Left or right? Drummond erred. Left or right? He could not see too far ahead. He could not see Matilde, her scarf or any part of her. It was a binary option. Left or right?
0: Thank you. So that leads us on perfectly, Michael, to talking about this question of um, keeping uh, a movement on task um, and on message. Uh, You talk about how in the very first march in 58, your job, even though you were key to organising the whole thing, your job on the day or on the four days was to run ahead um, of the march and make sure that the bands were ready and they would not play Uh, songs which weren't approved uh, in particular anti-american songs because you were worried that um, if this was seen especially by locals as being an anti-american protest or uh, particularly partisan protest uh, you know uh, support you know affiliated to one country you know the soviet union rather than another um, you would lose your lose the kind of power of the message and this the the early days of the march are described by everybody as as a very mixed, very kind of a a broad church, very Catholic in terms of all the people being there, uh, of all different sort of uh, backgrounds and and political positions. So um, what happened with this division? Um, Why um you know on the first first march everybody was on message you were there running up and down making sure that people were on message and there wasn't any alignment non-alignment you call it non-alignment to any particular cause or point of view um what happened between 58 and 63
1: Well, I would go back and say that uh, the peace movement, that there was a peace movement in the 1950s, like the the Stockholm Appeal against nuclear weapons, but it tended to be aligned uh, to to the Moscow line, that it was uh, against Western Mm -hmm. uh, weapons. I mean, it was a bit broader than that, but the emphasis was was certainly on... um, uh, on the bomb that the West has and and that the threat that that posed mm-hmm. um, and we wanted to be absolutely clear that we were against whoever had the the bomb whoever was threatened to use the bomb, and uh, we didn't want anything which gave the impression um, that we were aligning ourselves either with moscow or or Washington to yep. uh, come to that that we were against all those um, and the the um some of the, well, I think there was probably at least two groups of singers um, and we wanted to make sure that the the message they came across with was in line with our non-aligned position. And so um, we had conversations with them and certain songs which seemed to be uh, purely anti-Western um, were were not to be sung mm-hmm. um but we, we had went through the the list that they had and decided that, that these were ones that were all right it was it was fairly authoritarian but it, we were determined that it would be uh, a march that, that could not be just dismissed as, as a load of commies again you know mm-hmm. um so um my job and uh, We had, um, I think, April Carter was also with with one of these groups um, and maybe other people um, went along with the groups to make sure that they stuck by what we had agreed. Um, And maybe we were a bit sort of uh, authoritarian, really, uh, and a bit. Too worried about about this thing, but I think we were right to err on the side of caution, mm-hmm. so that um, nobody could just say, "Oh, that this is this is these are a load of commies." Yeah,
0: and and as the the the, the peace movement moved forward through the the end of the fifties and the early sixties. Was the, was the Cuban Missile Crisis kind of uh, a factor in, in this division that Stuart talks about, this breakaway group, the Spies for Peace? Or, or was there something else? Was there a sense that this wasn't enough? You know?
1: Well, the thing is that that... Uh division of well it was more of a division of of emphasis rather yeah. than uh, okay. than of aims yeah. but that really dated right from the start um when we had our operation gandian with that first aldermaston march the emphasis our emphasis was on gandian nonviolent action and that's why we moved on from aldermaston to the to the sit down in north Pickenham, the thor rocket bases there um and uh that did cause some tension with uh with the main CND. Yeah. Um and in fact the first Aldermaston march they were um so some of the people on uh, in the the main campaign were doubtful about it. I think JB Priestley was was not too sure about this uh switch to, to the streets as it were. Um and uh that developed into something much more serious later on when bertrand russell in 1960 um formed the the committee of 100 this was the idea of having um a, of putting the direct action that we had pioneered in a small way to put it on a mass scale and he was uh, there was a, a real, I think a partly a personality clash between uh, Uh, Canon Collins, the uh, chair of CND, and Bertrand Russell, who had been the president. um, And eventually, um, Russell resigned from uh, the presidency uh, to to form this uh, um, Committee of 100, along with Michael Scott, um, he was he was an Anglican priest who had been in South Africa, campaigned against well even pre the apartheid years he was campaigning against uh, the uh, discrimination. Uh, he spoke to the Fourth Committee of the United Nations to insist that Southwest Africa, uh, which was a mandated territory. Uh, and South Africa being being the, the country that it was mandated to look after it um, South Africa had said we don't need to have a, a any kind of plebiscite on this, we know our people and they want to come in with South Africa and Michael Scott got on a back of a truck and went into Southwest Africa, now in Namibia, and um, saw the the chiefs, particularly the Herero uh, tribe chiefs, and they said, no, we don't want to be part of South Africa. We don't want this this system of racial discrimination. And he was able to go back and to be part of the Indian delegation to speak to the United Nations um, and say, no, this isn't right. It, It can't happen. And really, that was a key moment and if you go now to wind windhoek the capital of of uh, what is now independent namibia there is a, a reverend My, there is a michael scott one of the main streets is called michael scott so anyway he 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 came, he had come back to to britain and uh, had formed i just can't for the yeah, moment yeah, think of worry, the, the, the name um but so he was he was quite a well-known respected figure um, and so he and, and Bertrand Russell sort of represented, if you like, the secular and, and the more religious side of it, um, and they called for for this uh, mass movement. So uh, Michael had had been involved in well, he was on on our first demonstrations, Aldermaston and, and the sit down at North Pickenham, um, but uh, he and others felt we should now. Try to put this on a mass basis because if it's going to be effective, we have to have more people involved. Uh, and so we formed this Committee of 100. And the uh, key thing about the, the way it was was run was they said, rather than just asking for, for people to come along for a demonstration, they would say, we will not have this demonstration. It will not take place unless we have at least 2,000 people uh, signing up in advance, um, and I had been in uh, in Ghana for another protest that Michael Scott was involved with against the French tests in the Sahara. But I came back and, and was uh, secretary of um, of this Committee One Hundred, um, and uh, we were panicking at the end because we, you know, we didn't have the right number of signatories, and we had promised that we would not go ahead unless we got those and people were going out in the streets of people from the partisan going out and signing people up and in the end we had our 2,000 and when it happened which was a a sit down outside the Ministry of Defence the back end of Whitehall um, we had about 5,000 people in spite of the fact that it was banned in advance, we were told if we, if we went ahead we would be arrested. But there were enough of us. The police left us alone. And there's a, a lovely picture which appeared in the, in the Sunday papers of Bertrand Russell, aged 89, walking up Whitehall, sort of, uh, you know, leading this group of people. So it, it was a triumph in that the police... Um, didn't arrest us. The other amusing thing that happened is we decided we had this sort of manifesto, which we were in the spirit of Martin Luther, we were going to nail <laughs> onto the uh, Ministry of Defence door, and I had the hammer with the nails, <laughs> and Michael Scott had the uh, had the declaration. And We went to hammer it on, and they said, "No, no, no! This door—you can't hammer nails into this door." So we had a, a very British compromise and stuck it up with sellotape. <laughs> <laughs>
0: so after '63, um, the uh, the declaration of war with uh, Vietnam sort of takes a lot of the yes. a lot of this uh, um, kind of the heat out of uh, the anti-nuclear campaign and. Um, and a lot of the energy and kind of uh uh, kind of firepower if you like um went into um grosvenor square grosvenor square demos and so forth um did you yourselves feel uh kind of compelled to divert your
1: campaigning um well i was certainly uh campaigning against the vietnam war and i was part of a group which was uh Disseminate. Well, I was part of War Resisters International which brought out a leaflet urging uh, or informing American troops in Europe um, of the, the resistance to the Vietnam War and, and telling them the options that they had as a, to conscientiously object, to refuse to go, and even to desert. Um, and uh, we were trying to set up a network of... Uh, of people who would help those who had decided to, to desert. And that was, an in, War Resisters International, uh, as its name implies, was international. So we had groups in, in uh, various European countries and the United States, even in Vietnam itself, through somebody on, in our group who was uh, a Buddhist and uh, was against the war there. Um So... I was certainly involved in that side of things, but i never uh felt that uh, it was taken. That the issue yeah that that it shouldn't uh, shouldn't divert us from from that issue um, I was also involved in um when when the colonels took over in, in Greece, uh, that coup um in uh, in a demonstration an occupation of the greek embassy um to call upon all the other embassies. It was quite ambitious. We, uh, we had someone who knew how to use these machines that they had, um, <laughs> to call upon all of them to say, we are backing the properly elected government and we reject um, we, we reject this coup. And how long did you spend in jail for that one? I spent... Uh, about, let me see, it was about eight months. I think I got a year. But I mean, I had previously been uh, with the Committee of 100. We had a series of demonstrations. Started off um, where they, they just left us alone. The second one, they arrested nearly a thousand people. But we were given quite a nominal sentence for obstruction. Um, in my case, I was, if you didn't pay the fine, you got a day's imprisonment. Well, that, mm-hmm. was, that was a cinch. You just stayed in the police cell for yeah, the day and, right. then, and then you got out. Um, what happened is that we were building up the, the numbers and the authorities decided they would intervene more uh, strategically and arrest, they arrested Bertrand Russell and we had quite a few well-known people, Arnold Wesker, Christopher Logue, uh, Robert Bolt, um
0: um you had richard uh, burton involved in the f- making of the film oh in making of the film that's yeah. right
1: yes he uh uh he read it he, it's his the, voice yeah, on yeah. that film yeah um
0: and is there a sense that uh, the police are kind of learning on the job and and uh you say they're being more strategic in terms of the people they arrest they they're going for the leadership so were you i guess you were kind of they had a file on you and mi5 had a file on you and And you as well, May, probably. Um, Did you ever um, pause for thought and think, you know, this is getting a bit too serious? Um, Or were you ever worried that, you know, if if things really got bad, um, you would be dealt with as a, you know, you would be taken out of the equation completely?
1: I don't think I worried about that at all. uh, What I was interested in is. Uh, building up this campaign to the point where it w- we would actually get rid of nuclear mm. weapons and and maybe uh, adopt a different kind of defense, non-violent form mm. of defense. Um, so uh, that was much more on my mind. And, you know, we had the example of Gandhi mm. and and by then of, of the uh, um, movement in, in the United States against uh, Racial discrimination, so it was um, you know carried along by that, and uh, so no i i don 't think I, I worried about that, and as a matter of fact that the the longest term uh, arresting the trying out the tactic of of uh, arresting Bertrand Russell and those sort of leadership and and sending them to prison for a month they uh, moved against the actual organisers in the office and they raided the office. Uh, and just before this big demonstration that we were planning, there were about six or seven different demonstrations. Um, and uh, what they did then was arrest those of us who were organising it charge us under the Official Secrets Act. Mm-hmm. Not because they said we were spies, but they said this is a prohibited place within the meaning of the Official Secrets Act. So we were, f- and, and it was a conspiracy charge, so it could have been an indefinitely long sentence. But um, uh, so there was a sort of show trial. We were actually prosecuted by uh, uh, Manningham Buller, who was the Attorney General at the time, um, um, but we had some good people on us I, Bertrand Russell came and spoke in court and Archbishop, Catholic Archbishop Roberts came and, and talked about the Christian martyrs and so on um, and we were sentenced to 18 months um, and so I spent that in, in uh, Wormwood Scrubs but it didn't do me any, any harm because I had left school at 16 and when I was in Wormwood Scrubs I took uh um, two A levels and two o levels and a university entrance exam, so that was my passport into <laughs> higher education fantastic
2: you m- you mentioned um about you know being on file mm. when I joined the probation service and in nineteen sixty five the chief probation officer had a phone call from yeah. the home office yeah. to say, "Do you know who you've got there yeah. Are you happy that you've got somebody who has been in prison and has committed offences? And he was very good. He said he did know, and yes, he was fine. So I had to more or less. So you you told him? I told him, yes. I thought there's no point in hiding it because they would have checked up anyway. Um, But I thought it was interesting because I changed my name. Through marriage, by then, so they still tracked me down, Mm -hmm. and um, I had to agree that whilst I was doing my home office training in London at the Rayner House, that uh, I wouldn't take part in any civil disobedience, and I I thought, well, you know, I'm only on; it's only a short time, (laughs) I won't. Um, But in fact, my life then uh, went a different way because I I, um, had a career in the probation service. I had three children. And it wasn't until they were able to um, participate in marches that I, I began to get active again and we took part in a trans-Pennine march in okay. the... I think it was in the 70s, towards the end of the 70s.
0: Just to zoom out and to also bring Stuart in, um, we often... I, I wonder how you feel, Michael, about the the way in which the... Uh, the peace movement and the 60s, the activism of the 60s, is kind of seen uh, from a distance or presented. The 60s is now often presented as kind of just a big kind of flower power kind of party with lots of tie-dyes and psychedelic music and all the rest of it. Um, and the, the very symbol which we were talking about, um, uh, the CND symbol, is kind of, it's almost been depoliticized. Um, and it, it just kind of means hippie music and Austin Powers and that kind of... Uh, it's it's had its content taken away from, from it. Do you do you feel that?
1: Not entirely. Um, I, I think when something like that, which takes off in, in that way, it goes in all sorts of directions. So, yes, it, it was sometimes just, uh, you know, a, a piece of artwork and uh, without... People really knowing what it meant or but I think still it does have that significance, mm. and I think something that takes off will go in different directions, yeah. but there is still that core yeah. um, meaning, and I think most people recognize that um, and yes, of course there was was the, the whole hippie movement, um, but that had uh, that had its positive sides as yeah. well i don 't sure. think we should uh, dismiss it. Sure. Do you
0: feel this, Stuart, that there is a kind of a bit of a uh, a, a gap there um, in terms of the way the 60s is currently represented um, just as like a musical youth phenomenon rather than as a, a period of political protest and
3: change? I think some of that has changed in recent years. I think um, more people are paying attention to um, the civil rights movement in the in, in in the states, particularly, I think that's something that people are looking back on um, and and thinking about and thinking about deeply, rather than perhaps the the more general idea, which is which be- perhaps best summed up by John Lennon, who was asked, you know, what happened in the '60s, and he said, we all got dressed up. And I think that is a is a very interesting way of looking at it in terms of you know people wearing. Um, the cloak of of the avant-garde and and, and wearing the garb of, um, of of protest, but actually, I think it affected an awful lot of people. Perhaps in in smaller ways than than perhaps we realise. I think that the the biggest illusion of the sixties is that um, it touched everybody in a way that that we now looking back on it assume that that is the case. When in fact, people went on and had very very normal lives. Um, and in fact, a, a lot of what I was writing about in, 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 this, in this story was about um, somebody who has been brought along, if you like, to, to something which is, for want of a better word, cool or uh, decidedly edgy and not feeling comfortable within that space, not feeling um, that it's really where they belonged. And I think that um, it's a great story that my mum tells about um, going, uh, going on holiday and uh with a friend the first time they've been away on holiday and um i can't remember exactly where they went on holiday but the beatles were playing uh in uh in the town that week and my mum point blank refused to go and see them because she said they'd sold out she'd seen them in the cabin in, in liverpool and they were no longer the uh, the the angry young men that she'd seen they were you know liked mm-hmm. by grandmothers and uh and her mother so therefore, they'd lost all that. And she ended up going to see The Bachelors instead, which in retrospect is probably not the best move that she ever made in her life. Um, but I think it does give you give you an idea of, of, of you know, that the, the, what we see as culturally very important was just very everyday. You know, the Beatles were just another band. I mean, admittedly on a different level to other people, but they... You know they for a time they weren't that scary, and then they were just wearing silly clothes that that the older generation could sort of laugh at and and that kind of thing so i think that there is there's a kind of tapestry if you like of 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 what the if you if there is such a thing as a truth that goes um that goes underneath it um between what it was like to experience it what it was like to be right at the very heart of it, what it was like to be on the periphery of it um and what it is to look back and 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 have some preconceptions that everyone had long hair, was wearing love beads and uh, and, and flared trousers. Um, when in fact, you know that really probably wasn't the case. There's a really interesting book uh, by Christopher Brooker called the, *The Neophiliacs*, which was absolutely roasted on its publication uh, by everybody who was hip in the 60s, um, but found lots of um, uh, lots of praise from the likes of Malcolm Muggeridge. Um which to um which which kind of tried to explode a little bit of the myths around the sixties, and I think a lot of it is tinged by a um uh, by a reactionary mindset but it 's a very interesting calibration to you know if you read any of barry miles's books on the sixties or the counterculture um or if you read um jonathan green's book which the title of which is um um we all got dressed up which is history of the the 60s um you probably get like quite a good picture of of what was going on at that time from reading all these different accounts but i think that such is the power of the 60s just by saying the 60s just by invoking it and the crucible of everything that was going on from you know 59 to 70 and you know the the longer 60s if you like if you 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 know if you take the idea that the 60s went on till you know say 74 or something like that um it's very difficult looking back on it now and and not having uh and and not to not to be swayed by that by just the sheer weight of what is going on from the rise of consumerism from the assassination of president kennedy the cuban missiles crisis second summer of love woodstock Concord, you know all of these things that are going on at, at this one time. It's just incredible um, bunching of historical um, phenomenon in one in one very short space of time. And you know, when we come to look back on it in fifty years' time, perhaps we'll look back at the at the acceleration of the internet age and the uh, the more recent protests, whether it's Me Too or Black Life Matters, mm-hmm. and saying saying that you know actually. In terms of that's that crucible of, of of events happening so quickly, you know, not technological, political, et cetera, is just as fascinating.
0: This kind of brings us on to uh, how uh, we're currently living in a bit of a uh, a protest moment. We're currently living in a in a new golden age of protest. Uh, we've recently had a Stansted Fifteen uh, protest. Uh, uh, where um, the protesters were charged under what has been regarded as uh, anti-terrorism laws. Um, they were found guilty, but they were uh, all given uh, non-custodial sentences. Um, there was a moment there where people were worried that they could be facing, you know, very, very long jail sentences. Do you feel, May and uh, Michael, that um, we're now kind of really needing to relearn um, those techniques uh and uh the 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 approach uh the approaches of of those movements back in the uh, early early late 50s are we are we entering into a time where we we need to uh kind of take to the streets again in the same way
2: i i think so um And for me, that sort of began again with um, CND's big 365 campaign when they agreed to sort of demonstrate in in area groups at Faslane. And so um, I was arrested twice at Faslane. I I don't think I noticed a deterioration in terms of how we were dealt with. It was much the same. Um, Some things uh, that happened were a bit unnecessary, like being woken at three in the morning uh, for our fingerprints to be taken you know that kind of thing but what was encouraging was that we all slept on the floor in um, I think it was a school and um, people for the first time I came across something called consensus I don't mean I'd never heard Mm. of the word consensus but I watched it in operation and that was mostly young people led And
0: And and, what's that? Well, it's
2: a way of of reaching agreement with a large group of people Mm -hmm. by signals, so that you signal um, with your hand if you want a point of information or if you want to make a technical point, you do that. And it's a way of getting uh, a view without everybody over-talking or dominating Mm -hmm. or something. And I was quite touched by that. I thought it was very effective. I'd never come across it before. This may be old hat to some people, but I... Hadn't come across it, and in that way, a large group of about two hundred and fifty people were able to make make a decision about how the demonstration was going to go. And, for instance, um, as well before that demonstration in Greater Manchester D office, say we had a workshop about locking on, uh, so that you couldn't be moved mm-hmm. and and that kind of thing. So I think there's been a growth of that kind of thing, and and I've noticed been one a two training. Group set up for teaching people about what you should do. There have been cards given out about what to do if you're arrested and that seems to have been quite refined really in terms of information given for people. Then you take that with the demonstrations. For instance today I came across the the young people and students mm. demonstrating about climate change and I think there is um, something happening there uh, and the Stansted people as well um I mean I just I was found it very hard to believe they'd actually use that legislation um and I wish there'd been a bigger protest about it but there was some protest and certainly if they'd have gone to prison there would have been uh, an uprising about it so I think I think there is a bit of awakening and and uh, and perhaps a need for people to be educated about non-violent action Mm.
0: Michael, in yeah. uh, in John Pilger's recent film, uh, the coming war with China. I don't know if you've seen well, it. I haven't seen it. Um, he t- he talks about this escalation in the Pacific. Uh, this this kind of um, escalation of um, uh, kind of military presence, American military presence uh, in various plis- uh, Pacific islands, kind of arcing around China. Um, and uh, it was actually made um, just as Trump was coming to power. The film was completed, but he looks at. Uh, small local protest movements uh, in the the southernmost kind of island of Japan and then across uh, across the Pacific Um, and he argues that we're um, we're re-entering a kind of uh, uh, not just a cold war in terms of relations between China and the rest of the world but also a kind of an escalation of uh, military tension do you do you See, do you see it that way, or do you kind of recognise that?
1: Well, I think it it's clear with with Trump in the White House um, that the the danger has increased, and some some of this uh, sort of bluster that that he that he engages in um, could really spark a major conflict. Of, I mean. Uh, you can't talk like that if you're the president of the United States without putting the rest of mm-hmm. the world at risk. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there's the, on that side um, there needs to be protest. Um, never mind whether it has ha- happened yet. I think it's 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 necessary in order to put some curb um, on, on these tendencies. But I would also say um, that one of the ways in in which um, Nonviolent direct action has progressed and taken on new forms, mm. in, including the way that people reach agreement has been through the uh, through the women 's movement the feminist movement has really uh, with the um, the me too mm. and other movements of that kind have um, ha- have been very important so I would see yes there 's a, a danger and the need for for action on the other hand, you can see um, a development of techniques of uh, of action that are really important and are you generally
0: optimistic um about our current current state of affairs um do you stop yourself from uh reading too much too much uh kind of news uh, or to consuming too much information uh, about what's happening in Around the Trump administration, um, because most of it is bluster or how how do you how how do you gauge it
1: Well, I think you have to be intellectually uh, skeptical about possibilities, but nevertheless, to feel these things have to be done, and mm-hmm. nothing is inevitable. Um, and so um, even though there are all these dangers, there are counter-movements which which are important. And uh, so we should never give up, even when it looks very bleak. When you look at it uh, and, and try to weigh it up, you, you think, well, how the hell are we going to get out of this? But I think it's important to, uh, not to give up and to, to realise... Um, that bigger victories have been won in the past and and this can be as well. Thank you.
0: I think that's the perfect uh, point to uh, draw this conversation to a close. Uh, It only remains for me to thank uh, our three guests today, Michael Randall, uh, May Chatham and Stuart Evers. Please join us next time when we'll be discussing the New Cross fire of 1981 and the subsequent uh, Brixton riots with Jacob Ross and Dr. Stephen Riker. Thank you.